You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guests today are Mark and Cora Logic. They were among the six American diplomats who hid out in the home of a Canadian diplomat at the time of the Iranian Revolution in 1979. They would be rescued in an operation led by CIA officer Tony Mendez and smuggled out by way of the airport in Tehran. An interview with Tony Mendez we did on the 2nd of September, 2008. Uh, today, we will have an opportunity to interview both Mark and Cora Lijek, as well as Tony Mendez, who has joined us. So, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Could you give us just a sense of the atmospherics in those days, that little period leading up to the actual takeover of the embassy? I was in Tehran for th about three months prior to the takeover. Uh, it was chaotic. Um, the government had basically collapsed. Uh, it was uh, dangerous to, uh, especially for Westerners, to travel around the city in the evenings. Uh, as I learned shortly after my arrival, uh, there were roadblocks at night, and uh, diplomatic status did not mean anything to the uh, comités, the revolutionary committees that manned these roadblocks. Um, on the plus side, there was a uh, esprit de corps within the diplomatic community. Uh, people still managed to have fun and get together despite the obstacles. And uh, essentially, it was uh, the real concern I had was um, I was okay there myself, but I really didn't want uh, my wife to join me, which had been the plan because I realized that Washington fundamentally misunderstood what was going on in Iran. They thought that the official government actually controlled something, and it was pretty obvious to everyone on the ground that they didn't, that talking to uh, President Bazargan or Prime Minister Bazargan was uh, essentially equivalent to talking to ourselves because he didn't run anything. And uh, the embassy, the political people, were trying to make that point to Washington, but not successfully. 
Now, you were a consular officer in the American Embassy. Yes. And uh, Cora, uh, you were a working wife, in effect, in, in the consular uh, section. Right. Did you, uh, clearly you experienced some apprehension about being in the street, as it were. Did it ever occur to anyone that something like a takeover of the embassy could occur? Well, you might recall the embassy actually was taken Valentine's Day that same year. So I don't think, you know, we it was something that uh, was out of possibility. However, when it did occur, I, thought, I think we all thought it would be the same. It would be held for 24 hours and everybody would be released because that's what had happened in February. And you were out of the embassy at the time, or did you flee the embassy? We were working, um, at least I was working. The consular section was closed because the charge was at the foreign ministry to protest uh, our walls having been defaced yet again with down with the Carter and uh, death to America kind of graffiti. And uh, he closed the visa unit in protest, but the rest of us were open. Uh, uh, had a few people in the waiting room, and we were in a separate building from the chancery, some distance away. And for whatever reason, the uh, the militants, when they stormed the compound, focused only on the chancery uh, for the initial hour or so. And by the time they got around to us, uh, I'd say maybe an hour had passed, and um, we were already thinking about what to do and where to go. Initially we were told to march over in a group to the chancery which seemed rather stupid and no one was was interested in that option but then they said uh, they told us to uh, go to the British Embassy which was the standard operating procedure that we would go there. Um, so we left our building ultimately um, uh, after about I'd say about two hours, two and a half hours uh, through the door that uh, visa applicants used to enter. It uh, opened onto a back alley and uh, we uh, took a left turn in the direction of the British Embassy and uh, uh, the rest of the Americans there went a different route. They decided to ignore the uh, British or the order to go to the British and went instead toward the, the home of the Consul General and they got arrested within couple minutes and we managed to get lost in the crowds and eventually uh, we didn't make it to the British Embassy because of a demonstration but we did make it to the apartment of Bob Anders one of the, the people in our group and from there we moved numerous times until we reached the Canadians. Now when you say we you're talking about you and Cora at this point. Well, no, there were in addition Joe and Kathy Stafford and Bob Anders, so there were five of us in the group um, that uh, uh, we weren't always together all the time, but uh, we made it to the Canadians as, as a group. Now, you ended up in the home of a Canadian consular officer, uh, John Sheardown. That's H correct. How did you happen to end up in his home in particular? Well, uh, Bob Anders and John Sheridan were friends, and after we had been on the run for a couple of days, had been hosted by the British and then put back on the street because of their security problems, their legitimate security problems, I should add, uh, we were uh, staying in an embassy-leased residence that um, we felt wasn't secure. Um, and. Uh, 
at one point Bob decided to explore the possibility of help from John. He called him and John's response was, well, why didn't you call sooner? And Bob said, well, I'm not by myself. I have other people with me. And John said, that's no problem. Bring them all. And we were, of course, very gratified by that response. Uh, but we didn't really want to impose our problems on the Canadians, so we didn't take immediate advantage of it. But I think well, within about two days, it became obvious we didn't have a choice. Um, and so uh, we called, uh, J Bob called John again, and uh, John contacted the, the British because they knew where we were hiding, having taken us there. And they came and got us and took us over to John's. Cora, did you feel safe there? At John's house? Yes. Definitely. It was a very private house. There was a wall around it, which was very common in northern Tehran, just the way most of the homes are. Um, and I don't think we, anything inside the house was visible from the neighbors' houses, where the house, the last house we had been at, the kitchen was right on the, kitchen window was right on the street. The back of the house had a window that went floor to ceiling. And this was a house of someone who was a hostage. <laughs> so... The house had been empty for several days and no power and all of a sudden here we are in there and we figure neighbors are going to see lights on and they probably gonna, would call someone. So um, we we're very happy to reach John's house, very safe house and the layout was really a perfect place to hide. Were you apprehensive at the time that, that the uh, folks taking over the embassy would simply be hunting for any other Americans in the area? Well I uh, I knew that the embassy maintained the records of all the leased houses, and I figured it was only a matter of time before they started going through them. And um, I had been making that argument to others in our group that you know we really couldn't count on safety in any house that was connected officially to the embassy. Uh, but again, uh, options were limited, so um, we uh, uh, we tried to stay in that house, um, uh, initially the house of the public affairs officer and then the house of the uh, woman who was in charge of the cultural center. Um, the, our host was a, a Thai um, fellow who had worked for the uh, uh, our number two guy, Victor Tomseth, and they were able to communicate in Thai. Victor was being held at the, or well, I guess he was a guest of the foreign ministry, but he was able to use the phone. And he is actually the one who arranged for us to use these homes. But uh, like I said, it was fairly clear that despite uh, Sam's best efforts, the Thai, the Thai gentleman, uh, things were not going to be viable for the long term there. Um, How long were you there before you finally uh, managed, before finally uh, the, the escape was arranged. How long did you actually spend there? About three months total. Three months. Yeah, we Can you just give a sense? I know we can't go day to day, but just give a sense, what was that like? Um, well, we kind of fell into a routine fairly quickly. John, of course, John Sheardown would go to work every day, and uh, Zena, his wife, was at home with us. And they actually also had a Filipino uh, woman working for them, Lolita. Um, they pretty much left us on our own during the day, um, and then at night when John would come home, we'd all sit down and have a formal dinner, and he would tell us the news, what had happened during the day, um, if there was anything going on with the hostages. We were able to watch news on TV for a while, but I think the television broke. It seems like at some point he was only our only source of information. 
Um, and while we were there, we were there at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and John and Zena did an amazing job trying to make us feel very welcome and at home. John managed to get a turkey somewhere for Thanksgiving, and at Christmas there were a few other diplomats that knew about us, and he invited the, those folks over for Christmas. And it was, you know, considering the situation, it actually was a very memorable Christmas. They really made us feel very comfortable. Let me just ask you, for that whole time you were in the house, which was something on the order of three months, did you have concerns? Was there anything happening or you were concerned about that would cause the information about your presence there to leak out? John and Zena had a gardener who belonged to the local comité. Each neighborhood had a local committee um, who guarded the area, kind of checked who came in and out of the neighborhood. And so John felt he couldn't fire him, but on the other hand, we didn't want him to see us and suddenly say, why are these four people in this house? Who are they? So we actually took shoe polish and we uh, put it on the windows in the kitchen. So if he were walking by, he wouldn't see us. It'd be kind of blurred. Um, and as far as I know, I don't think we ever had, were seen by him. The other issues um, were, uh, came later really when uh, the owner of the home that John was renting decided to sell it and all of a sudden uh, buyers were coming and we had to leave the house um, I think three or four times uh, Roger Lucy would come and get us and take us to his apartment but we uh, couldn't um, uh, well we were not used to being outside so just going out of the house was it was a source of paranoia and uh, nothing bad ever happened but we just felt very exposed and, and there were some other logistical problems for uh, uh, John uh, the biggest one being uh, taking care of garbage because there were uh, obviously four people especially uh, uh, or rather I should say six people as when there had been only two uh, a lot more garbage a lot more empty liquor bottles to get rid of and uh, that in particular was something that was sensitive in, in Tehran at the time. So uh, John was very inventive. He'd take the garbage to work with him. And I think he told us he was dumping it in front of the local comité at like 5 a.m. when nobody was around, just tossing it out his car window as he drove by. Um, so uh, we, we coped. There was one other incident I just remembered. Um, at Christmas time, I decided to make Christmas cookies. And the kitchen counters were just covered with these cookies. And a secretary from the Canadian Embassy, a local lady who didn't know about us, came by the house for some reason. So we had to go into hiding. And she ended up in the kitchen. And she looked around and she says, Zena, is this what you do all the time? You make cookies? And <laughs> Zena, she bakes now, but back then she really wasn't a cookie baker, but she had to pretend she'd made all these cookies. So that was pretty funny. <laughs> well, the secret was kept, so you were successful. When, uh, when Tony arrived on the scene, uh, had you had any warning, or was that uh, sort of uh, a bolt out of the blue, so to speak? Well, we had uh, started making noises to the Canadians that we thought uh, our situation needed to be addressed separately from that of the hostages, that uh, we had been told uh, there was a plan to escort the six of us uh, to the airport in the event that the uh, 
release of the hostages were somehow negotiated and we were supposed to kind of just show up at the last minute in this convoy with uh, half a dozen Western ambassadors uh, escorting us and be presented to the Iranians and uh, the Iranians would somehow magically agree to let us depart with the others and we thought that was not a good idea that more than likely it would cause the whole deal to explode and that we as uh, since we hadn't been captured or interrogated we obviously were the CIA people because we got out so uh, there was um, to me it just seemed like a really dumb idea and uh, to be blunt and and uh, in early February, we asked uh, Bob Anders and I drafted a, a, a cable. We asked um, Ken Taylor, Ambassador Taylor, to send through his channels to the State Department, basically saying the things that I've just outlined uh, in more polite language, but basically to the effect that uh, we needed, uh, there needed to be a plan to get us out of Iran um, because our continued presence was, uh, with each passing day, the likelihood of something going wrong. Murphy's Law, you know, we're going to get caught somehow. Uh, the Canadians were exposing themselves to ever greater risk. And uh, so uh, the message was never formally transmitted, but I do think that Ambassador Taylor made it, uh, did pass on the gist of our feelings. And I think also there were people in Washington who had similar views that we needed to, uh, perhaps Tony, I'm, I'm not sure, but, but I think there was a sense that it, our problem was separate, and it needed to be addressed sooner rather than later. Ambassador Taylor, of course, was the uh, was the Canadian ambassador who uh, performed right. uh, quite courageously during this period and sort of enabled a number of you to stay in hiding. Yes. Tell us uh, or or share with us the the arrival of Tony. I'll just put it that way. Um. Well, you tell this story better than I do, Cora, but. Uh, we were uh, getting ready for dinner, I think. Mm -hmm. We'd have been told there was going to be a special guest. Right. Yeah. I don't, my memory, unfortunately, is not so great, but there were two gentlemen who came to dinner. One of them was Tony. And um, I don't think a lot was said during the dinner, but afterwards we... Do you we, have any uh, idea who they were? I'm trying to remember. Did they tell us? Or did we think they were Canadians? I don't recall, well, actually. Uh, you know, I honestly don't recall now either, but I think we were told ahead of time by Ken that uh, uh, a plan had been put in motion to get us out and that people would be coming. This was probably about five days prior. And um, so we were getting a little excited about the prospect. And then uh, when Tony actually he came, he came with a, a, another individual and it as I recall, about dinner time, and we all sat down and uh, had uh, uh, a good meal. We, we were um, uh, practicing, uh, at that point, what we called the scorched earth policy, which was to try to completely consume all the liquor and uh, <laughs> wine and basically everything that was worth consuming before we left. And since we already had, at that point, a sense of how long that would be, we were a little, felt a little freer to, to uh, attack John's store. By this time, I should mention, the Sheardowns had been evacuated, so we were, uh, at that point, uh, our, our babysitter was Roger Lucy, who was uh, the head of Chancery, uh, I guess the chief political officer in our uh, terminology, and um, 
we also had some other guests at this dinner. I remember the Danish ambassador was there, Trolls Monk, and a few other people. And it was more of a social event than anything else. I think the idea was to get us relaxed and and to uh, to get to know Tony. And, and Tony was telling us war stories um, about um, how he had um, extricated people from far worse situations than ours. And how the Iranians were not really in the same league as, say, the Soviets as far as uh, border security, and that was important to us. So it, it, at some point it, it must have dawned on you, or, or, or Tony said, and we can check with him later, uh, that the, the uh, purpose of his visit was to help, in effect, smuggle you out right. well, of Iran, or sometimes we say getting people out black in, in the <laughs> operations side. Uh, how did that sound to you? Well, we were very happy with the idea of leaving, and as I recall, um, those of us who would be leaving went to the den where we spent the day with Tony and the other gentlemen, and Tony told us about several scenarios of ways to, to get us out, and um, one was that we were unemployed teachers, I think, and had come back to Tehran, but the international school was closed, so that didn't make any sense, and something else was about a businessman. And Tony really sold us on the Hollywood story because, as Mark said at the time, who'd be crazy enough to come to revolutionary Iran? Well, people from Hollywood, you know, they wouldn't think anything of it. But also Tony had an amazing background, and he told us if we got stopped, and there was a phone call, call to Hollywood, there was a person who would answer the phone and say, yes, we are making a movie. Uh, yes, um, Teresa Harris and you know all the different names are involved in this movie. And he, they'd actually even put an ad for the movie in Variety. I mean, there was an amazing uh, reality, I mean, not re reality, but regalia, maybe you'd call it, out there, um, and the story would hold. And I think we were just really amazed at that. And Tony really got our confidence um, in convincing us to do that scenario. So you, you, in effect, and I think I recall this from our interview with Tony, uh, began preparing for this exit, uh, and you were being trained, in effect, or coached, let's put it that way, to take on the persona of an advance party for a film. Uh, what was that like, and were you scared? Um... The training part was actually pretty interesting. They gave us information like our new birthdays and our new names. And whoever put that information together did a really good job because Mark had my father's birthday but his year. So it was something I couldn't forget. And a lot of the information was like that, things I already knew. And I thought, you know, since we were amateurs particularly, that, and I don't know if that was true for everybody, I'm assuming it was, um, but I think Mark had my dad's first name and middle name. Right. Um, so, you know, things if I got questioned, no problem. So I felt really comfortable with those things. So we did do a little um, interrogation um, with some other diplomats who were helping well, us. Roger, in particular, right. was, uh, Roger is a history buff and he wore his Nazi German trench coat and sat down as the uh, chief interrogator and uh, barked out the questions and uh, trying to put as much pressure on us to respond quickly, you know, uh, and uh, did a good job. It was and he did it in a fun way. I mean, it was we didn't get too wrapped up in it, but at the same time, uh, we all knew it was pretty serious and we wanted to do a good job. But to, you have to keep your sense of humor. I mean, uh, at least I. Th 
think it was important, and, and he helped that, and Tony helped that. It was, uh, um, considering what we were about to do, I think the attitude was pretty relaxed, um, and that was important. I'm trying to, what, uh, may I just ask you, what was your ostensible role in this advance party? What is it that you were you were doing for the film? I was the writer of the script. You were the writer, and you you felt you could carry that off. I think so. Yeah. Okay. How about you, Mark? I was the transportation coordinator, and I'm not sure how <laughs> how many questions I could have answered, but the, the basic thing um, seemed fairly straightforward to me. That especially if you're going to shoot at Persepolis, which I believe was uh, what we were planning, if I remember correctly, uh, the logistics of getting there and supporting uh, all these Hollywood prima donnas and so forth would be considerable. So uh, bringing somebody like me along made, made a lot of sense, and I, I wouldn't have thought that I would be, that my presence would have been viewed by anyone with any knowledge of, of filmmaking as exceptional, so I, I didn't worry too much about the details. Okay, so you weren't the one with your shirt unbuttoned down to the waist <laughs> and wearing a gold medallion? No. That was Bob <laughs> Anders. He was, okay. Uh, was he going to be the, uh, I think, the director for that area or something? However, the, the, I forget the terminology now, but Bob decided that the, uh, he was going to be a little um, flamboyant shall we say. And okay, but I think it goes along with the, the, the roles that you were playing as right. an advance party for Hollywood Productions. So we take you up to the, uh, was it a morning departure? That mor Was it one morning that you then made your way to the airport? It was in the morning. Um, they brought some embassy vehicles and as we left the house we immediately went into our roles because the drivers of course didn't know who we were and so I think there was some talk about the movie and they're telling us good luck on our project and then headed off to the airport. Yeah, I should note that uh, we had had about an hour and a half of sleep. We had a, a big farewell party the night before and we truly did finish off the rest of the, uh, the booze. So <laughs> okay. the, there was a little concern we might smell smell like alcohol a bit much but I, I tried to brush my teeth about four times uh, to get rid of that but we only slept for an hour and a half but we kind of liked that it, we, we were operating on adrenaline there was no no doubt about it and um, but it seemed the way to go uh, well that was showtime wasn't it yes it so was. so <laughs> what we'll do is uh, we'll uh, uh, leave our listeners here and uh, we will do another spy cast uh, with both of you and with Tony. So thank you so much for sharing this part of your of your experience, which was truly quite extraordinary. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.